It is the week before Easter, and Easter's, you know, kind of a big deal around here. We get super excited because a lot of people show up, and a lot of people may come back to church that haven't been here for a while, and so we're definitely looking forward to Easter next Sunday. And so in the meantime, we've been focusing on this series called The Invitation, because really what Easter is, is an invitation to new life. It's an invitation to a new way of living, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, and that's what we're talking about leading up to Easter. And all of that really is about this concept that Jesus introduced 2,000 years ago called the kingdom of heaven. Jesus introduced a concept called the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we think of heaven, we might have been trained to think of heaven in terms of the place we go when we die, a place of paradise and bliss. And Jesus certainly talked about that a few times, and so we're very happy about that promise. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he was primarily talking about right here and right now. In fact, his disciples said to Jesus, hey, what should we pray for? Jesus says, I have an idea. Pray this. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus had this vision that what happens on earth would very much mirror what happens in heaven, that there would be peace, that there would be love, that there would be kindness, that we would treat each other well that there would be no division, no war, no hunger. I mean, these are the things of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Now, 2,000 years later, a lot of us have gotten kind of jaded to that idea. Well, that's just not possible. This earth needs to pass away so heaven can come when we die. And listen, I understand that. So it's not like I'm not sympathetic to that point of view. But I think if we miss the idea that Jesus wanted at least a bit of heaven to be experienced now, we're gonna miss a lot of the teaching of Jesus. And we're gonna miss the invitation of Jesus to live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven right now. And so over the last several weeks, we've talked about what it means to be invited into the kingdom of heaven. Two weeks ago, we started with this invitation to a new way of thinking. Because really, the kingdom of heaven is right here. It starts with how we think. It starts with what we believe. And so there's an invitation to think differently about God, not as a harsh, distant, angry judge, but a perfect father who loves us and forgives us and accepts us and is always for us. There's an invitation to think about ourselves differently. Not a sinner separated from God, deserving condemnation, but a dearly loved child of God who God declares perfect in his eyes. It's thinking about ourselves differently. It's thinking about others differently, that all people are brothers and sisters. I mean, this is the kingdom of heaven. What if we all think of each other and treated each other as brothers and sisters in the same family? What difference would that make? What if we thought about the world differently? that this world was made good by God and and that God wants to restore whatever is broken in this world. So instead of riding off this world as something that's just, you know, it's got to pass away, it's got to burn or whatever, to think, no, God loves this world and he loves everybody on it. And yes, this world goes sideways and it's broken and there's pain and there's harm and there's violence, but God wants this place fixed, not thrown away, but fixed. That's a new way of thinking. That's the kingdom of heaven. It starts right here. In John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life, and that's present tense, have eternal life right here and right now if we believe differently about God, about ourselves, about people, and about the world. It lightens things up. It is truly new life. Last week, Carissa talked about the invitation to a new way of being human. And she talked about the early days of the ministry of Jesus where God the Father declares Jesus my beloved son. And then she says, we still have the same declaration in Ephesians chapter one. We are beloved sons. We are beloved daughters of God. He looks at us the way he looks at Jesus. Every way God looks at Jesus, that's how he looks at us. 
That is the measure of God's grace. It is fantastic, right? That's a new way of being human. And when we understand how loved we are by God, we can sort of decouple from the things of this world that try to give us meaning but really don't, things like power, prestige, and possessions. We can decouple from the pursuit of those things because we are so satisfied in who we are and the love of God, and then we can live a life of love. We can live free in the happiness of experiencing the love of God and loving others. That's a new way of being human. And today, we're going to wrap up pre-Easter with this invitation to a new community because we are not called to be alone in this whole thing. We're not called to be alone. We're not called to just be in our minds. We're not called to just have a personal relationship with God. We are called to be together as a brand new community living in the kingdom of heaven. And it happens to be Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a perfect week to talk about a new community, a new community, because that's what Palm Sunday is all about. Now, when I say Palm Sunday, most of you who are raised in church will go, oh, yeah, I know what Palm Sunday is. It's the Sunday before Easter where Jesus came into Jerusalem and there was a big celebration, and you'd be right. A lot of you do not know what Palm Sunday is because you weren't raised in church and you're like, this is gonna be another weird religious thing, isn't it? And uh, no, it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. I'm gonna explain what Palm Sunday is and you'll totally nail it. You'll be able to write a book about it when we're done here in a, in a little while. All right. So let me set the context of the, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Jesus was born and raised in what is modern-day Israel. At the time, it was known as the province of Palestine under the Roman Empire. And in Israel, like most countries or most states, there is an urban part and there is a rural part. Um, to use American terms, which some people find offensive, and I totally understand, there are the coasts and then there's the fly, flyover, right? So when we say, you know, there's a rural and an urban, we know what that's like in America. There's the city culture, primarily on the coasts, and there's what the city people call the flyover country, which the flyover people are deeply offended at, and I totally understand, because that's more of the, you know, the, the rural setting. And so there's this divide always between the city people and the country people. And that's basically what was happening at the time of Jesus. So I'm going to show you a map of the area of Palestine, modern-day Israel, and uh, we, here's a road map of, of, uh, of ancient uh, Israel during the time of Christ. In the north, you see those yellow roads. They're kind of sparsely you know, populated areas. And so there's a few roads up to the north by the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus hung out a lot. He was born in that area. He was raised in that, in that area. He had the accent of that area. He knew those people. Then if you go south to the left of uh, what is now known as the Dead Sea, it looks like Southern California freeways, right? That's the city area. That's Jerusalem, the capital city of Jerusalem. So there were the northerners, and then there were the southerners. Now, Jesus was very popular in the north. He came from the north. He spent the vast majority of his time in the north. And Jesus brought a whole new way of understanding God because he told these people who were poor, they were not well-respected, they were not well-educated, they were not near a temple. They felt they were second-class citizens, not just culturally, but even in their relationship with God. They understood that they were second-class because they weren't in the cities. They weren't educated. They didn't have the, you know, the books of the Bible memorized. They largely couldn't even read. And they were distant from a temple, so they figured, if I can't participate in temple life, God must not be very pleased with me. So they thought of themselves as second-class citizens, even in the face of God. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to give you a whole new way of thinking, and I want you to understand that God loves you. He fully embraces you. He has forgiven you of everything you've done wrong. 
He's a heavenly father who just wants to embrace you and accept you and, and know how loved you are by him. And he was proving that by healing the sick and performing miracles, basically telling the people, I am coming with the authority of God, believe me. And they did. Tens of thousands of people flocking around Jesus in the north. Every time you read in your Bible that there are thousands of people around Jesus, that's the north. When he's feeding thousands, that's the north. When there's a throng of people crushing Jesus, that's the north. Very well accepted in the north. Now in the south, Jesus also had some followers as well. Not a lot, but he has some followers. Jesus went to the south, to Jerusalem specifically, to perform the rituals in the temple. He was a Jewish man, so he performed the religious rituals of Jewish people. Sometimes that would go to Jerusalem, and he would do that in the temple. And so when he was down there, he also made quite a lot of noise. He did some healings as well on the Sabbath day. Oops, you shouldn't do that. That's a religious day. You're not supposed to be working. So he would get harassed by religious leaders every single time he was in Jerusalem. He would be harassed by religious leaders. And then he'd harass them right back. I mean, they had a back and forth in Jerusalem. The religious leaders were against Jesus, and Jesus set himself against the religious leaders because he knew they were religiously oppressing people, and he came to make sure everybody understood they were free. They were free. The northerners and the southerners did not get along. They didn't get along at all. The northerners were the country folk. The southerners were the city sophisticates. The northerners were uneducated. The southerners were quite educated. The northerners had an uneducated accent. The southerners a more sophisticated accent. The northerners would consider the commoners. The southerners considered the elite by themselves. The northerners were not considered blessed because they were not near the temple and they were not near the capital city of Jerusalem, which was considered to be the holy city. The southerners were patting themselves on the back all the time because they were near the temple, performed the temple rituals, and were in the southern city of Jerusalem, the city of God. Right? So you get the difference here. Even at the birth of Jesus, we see that the northerners and the southerners did not get along. When Jesus was, was born, um, there was this declaration from a southern elitist who said, can anything good come from Nazareth, city in the north? Jesus was born in the north, and so the southern elites was, nothing good can come out of the north, right? It's almost like, you know, calling them hillbillies. Nothing against you hillbillies. Love hillbillies. But that's, that's sort of how it was. I mean, a kind of a derogatory term that they, it's just the northerners. And Jesus was from the north, never, ever fully respected. Now, the problem for Jesus was in the south. He had no problems up north. Eh, a couple, he's kicked out of his hometown and a couple things. But really, his problem was in the south, where the religious elites, the political elites, the cultural elites didn't like this northerner coming down and telling them what to do. They were absolutely, fiercely tied to their religious ceremonies, their religious laws, their, their temple rites and rituals. And Jesus says, you really don't need any of that. You need to embrace God's love for you, God's grace for you, and really could you understand that God is a father. You just need to know that God is a father and enjoy that. But no, they were peddling religion, religious devotion, religious laws, and so there was a fight in the South. Jesus was wildly popular in the South, very controversial, wildly popular in the North, very controversial in the South. So whenever Jesus went to the South, specifically the streets of Jerusalem, they were always trying to conspire to kill him. They wanted him gone, gone, gone. So here comes Passover week. Passover week, as you may know, is, is a Jewish celebration of their 
uh, freedom from Egypt. Roughly 1400-ish BC, um, the nation of, uh, of Israel had been in captivity uh, in Egypt for about 400 years. And through 10 plagues and the sacrifice of a lamb, they were set free. You can read the story in, in, in Exodus. They were set free. So every Passover, even to this day, many Jewish families still eat lamb because that's what you do on Passover if you're a Jewish family and you celebrate freedom. Freedom from slavery, freedom to the promised land. It's the cultural centerpiece of Jewish life. Still to this very day, even non-religious Jews oftentimes celebrate Passover. Maybe not perfectly, but mostly. And so it's a big deal. This is Passover week. Jesus has a choice to make. Jesus has a choice to make. Do we go into Jerusalem or not? Do we go into Jerusalem or not? Because the reality was pretty much everybody went to Jerusalem during Passover week. During Passover, everyone sacrificed to God to remember the sacrifice that caused them to escape slavery in Egypt. Everyone during Passover would gather together in the elite southern city of Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to God. And I want you to put that phrase in your brain. During Passover, everyone sacrificed to God. I'm going to revisit that in about seven and a half minutes, give or take. That's why you went there. You went there to sacrifice a lamb. You went there to go through all the rituals of Passover to remember that God set us free. But the problem was for Jesus, Passover's in the south. Passover is in Jerusalem. And he knew the religious leaders wanted him dead. So what does he do? He was very popular in the north, very controversial in the south. He could have easily passed on this one. He could have easily said to his disciples, hey, you know I'm pretty controversial in the south. You know that there have been threats to my life in Jerusalem, and I'm going to sit this one out. I'm not going to go. And the disciples, thousands of them, would have said, uh, okay, we kind of get it. If you go there, you're probably not going to make it out. We give you a pass. If Jesus passed, there would have been, I think, a universal understanding. Okay, I get it. You know, save your life. Don't go to Jerusalem. But if Jesus passed... And if he didn't go to Jerusalem, his movement's over. His movement's over. Let me set the stage a little bit. Because Jesus was so controversial, his, his movement and the tension of his movement was starting to rise because he was calling out the religious leaders and he was calling out oppressors and he was calling out people who used guilt and shame to manipulate people and Jesus wanted to set them free. So, so Jesus is being persecuted by religious leaders, but Jesus is also pushing back against religious leaders saying, hey, listen, my people, all people, need to live free in God's grace, and you're preventing that. Jesus says you are whitewashed tombs. You're a brood of vipers, right? You're making sons of hell. I mean, Jesus is not being kind to these religious leaders. So tension is rising. So here you have the kingdom of heaven, which is based on grace and love and mercy, setting everyone free. And then you have the religious oppressors who are wanting to keep everybody in captivity, keeping everybody enslaved by guilt and shame and condemnation. So these two kingdoms are rising and they can't coexist very well. Either God is a God of grace and love or he's a God of judgment and condemnation. You can't carry those two ideas at the same, at the same time. What does 1 John 4 say? Perfect love casts out all fear. So if religious leaders are peddling fear and Jesus is, is preaching love, that can't coexist. One casts the other out. So as these tensions are rising between the kingdom of heaven, of love and grace and mercy, and the kingdom of the world, which is guilt and shame and condemnation, as those, those two things are rising, if Jesus bows out and says, I'm not going to Jerusalem, that whole thing loses. The kingdom of the world and the culture of religion 
wins. So Jesus, who never stepped away from doing the right thing, does the right thing, and at his own peril, goes south to Jerusalem. Here's what he says is gonna happen. Mark 10, 33. Listen, Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. Now, if you're the disciples of Jesus, and keep in mind, there's not just the 12 disciples, there's the 70, the 120, and the hundreds, and the thousands. As you're kind of walking south towards this Passover celebration in Jerusalem, and Jesus says this, I'm gonna go there, the religious leaders are gonna arrest me, torture me, and kill me. I think you're having a bad day. I think you're second-guessing the journey, maybe. But these disciples have been around Jesus an awful lot. They've been around Jesus a lot. And they know, you know, he, he rarely speaks literally. He's often speaking in stories and allegories, and he's giving, you know, illustrations and examples and parables. He's rarely speaking literally. He's speaking in hyperbole a lot, and so I'm sure they're thinking, well, this is just another hyperbole. This is another one of Jesus' metaphors. And so do you know what they did in response to Jesus' message that he's gonna be arrested and tortured and killed? Nothing, nothing. They didn't address it, they didn't talk about it. I'm sure they were just looking at each other like, this is awkward. Don't look him in the eyes, what is he talking about? So they just kept moving on. They just kept moving on. One of my favorite scenes of a movie, I won't even mention the movie title, but it's, uh, it's something like this. The world around is collapsing. Nothing to see, nothing to see, move on. Nothing to see, right? Some of you know what the movie is. It's one of my childhood favorites. But that's what was going on. Jesus said, the whole world is blowing up. I'll be arrested, tortured, and killed. And the disciples are like, we didn't see anything. Just keep moving, just keep going south. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, there's just a little commentary about that incident. But the disciples didn't understand any of it. The significance of his words was hidden from them and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. What they didn't realize was that Jesus was actually speaking literally, which he hardly ever did, but he did here. And what he actually meant was what he actually said. We're gonna go into Jerusalem. The religious leaders will arrest me. They will hand me over to Rome. I will be tortured and I will die. He actually meant what he literally said. So you might recall earlier, I said during Passover, everyone sacrificed to God. Everyone went to Passover, sacrificed an animal to please God. Jesus turned the whole thing around. He says during Passover, I'm actually gonna go to Jerusalem and God will sacrifice for you. Totally flipped it, totally flipped it. And so you can understand why the disciples didn't get what Jesus was saying because in their whole paradigm, it's about, no, we're going to Passover we sacrifice for God. We sacrifice a dove, we sacrifice a, a lamb, we sacrifice a cow, whatever we can afford. We sacrifice to give to God to please him. And Jesus says, no, this whole thing is being turned around. The kingdom of heaven is totally turned around. I'm going to go into Jerusalem and I will sacrifice myself to please you. God doesn't need our sacrifice, but Jesus says, you need mine. And he walked into Jerusalem 
and he gave himself, even his own life, to prove the love that God has for us, to prove to all of us that this message that Jesus came is a, it, to, to deliver, this message of forgiveness, this message that God is a father, this message that we are embraced, no matter our background, no matter our religious background, no matter our ethnic background, or economic background, no matter if we're in the north or in the south, Jesus says the love of God, the grace of God is for you. And he gave that message to the very, very end and cost him everything. They couldn't get their heads around this idea that God was sacrificed for us, so they just get, don't, let's pretend he didn't even say that and let's just keep moving on. Here's a Palm Sunday picture I, I love. It's from a, a movie. And I just like the vibe of this, right? Palm Sunday. They go south to Jerusalem. They're outside the gates. The northerners meet the southerners and they have a huge celebration, huge celebration. They are, they're partying, they're having a good time. Here is this Jesus, and he's highly popular in the north and very controversial in the south, but the southern followers of Jesus went to him, and they celebrated with the northerners who they did not like, did not love, did not respect. They, they were brought together on that Palm Sunday. John 12, 12 says this about Palm Sunday. News that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. Everybody went to the road to celebrate Jesus. And they brought palm branches. Now, um, what are palm branches? Why does that have any significance 2,000 years ago? Well, I have a, a house that has way too many palm trees. I didn't plant these suckers. I don't think I would have. They are filthy. They're a mess. I'm constantly chopping down palm branches. And so I chopped one down this morning and brought it here. And I didn't realize when I chopped it down how big it was. This is a huge sucker. And so um, I put it in my, I had to drive my wife's car today. And so putting this in my wife's car was really awesome. So I was driving to church today like this, like, like hoping nobody would see me. But here's a palm branch. And then I did find out today that I'm probably allergic to these. So I apologize if I'm a mess for the rest of this time. But what they would do is, is, is when there was a big celebration, particularly about victory or peace, they would bring their palm branches and they would wave their palm branches. And so here is Jesus coming from the north to the south, thousands of people with him from the north, meeting probably hundreds of devoted followers from the south, and they raise palm branches. Why palm branches? Well, palm branches are a symbol, as I said earlier, of victory and peace. So what would typically happen is if there was a, let's say, a, a battle, and there was a general who came back from war and they came back victorious, they would have a parade that would involve palm branches because, hey, we won the war and we are, we are experiencing peace. That's the symbolism of a palm branch. Here's the fascinating thing about why they would wave that in front of Jesus. He was not a man of war. He was a man of peace. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with war or violence or politics. Message of love, message of grace, message that God is a father, message that everybody is welcome, right? And so these palm branches being waved in front of Jesus says that you won, Jesus. This kingdom is victorious over the kingdoms of the earth. It's victorious over the kingdoms of, of religion and politics and tribalism, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, that the kingdom of Jesus is winning, not in any military way, no violence, no weapons, not even anger, it's love. And love is winning and they're waving those palm branches in front of Jesus. You are victorious, Jesus. And yours is a kingdom of peace. Yours is a kingdom of peace. So what is this kingdom all about? What is this new community all about? We see that in the narrative of Palm Sunday. 
Uh, first, it's a, a new community with a new leader. They're waving these palm branches in front of Jesus. He is their leader. John 12, 13, they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel, the king of Israel. Now, Israel was an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. Anybody says, king, anything, you're dead. That's just the way it goes in Rome. Caesar will have no opposition, none. So when these people are saying King Jesus, immediately, he, there's a death sentence on this guy. But everybody knew, even then, and even Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't even talking about an earthly kingdom. They were waving palm branches of victory without war. So Jesus was not an earthly king. Nobody was really threatened from any earthly perspective. Even Pontius Pilate says, yeah, he's a king, but he says it's not of this world and he's fine with me and Pilate washes his hands. Jesus is no threat to any political position. He's no threat to any earthly king because he's the king of the kingdom of heaven. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's in our minds, it's in our hearts, it's in our community, right? So this is a new community with a new king and a new kind of king. They crowned Jesus king in their minds. They crowned Jesus king in their heart. And can I tell you, you know, we're living in a country that is going through a lot politically. I don't have to give you any details. We are going through, you know, perhaps a coming election season where the 2024 election season might say to 2020, hold my beer. I mean, I don't know where this is all going, but it's getting really crazy. It's been crazy before. Can it get crazier? I don't know, right? But how freeing would it be for us to say, hey, listen, we follow Jesus. We follow the Prince of Peace. We're waving palm branches here, right? We're not waving political power. We're not waving military power. We're not threatening violence. We're bringing peace, 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 and togetherness and unity. The same togetherness and unity that was experienced at Palm Sunday with different factions of people from different backgrounds all coming together and celebrating, right? Can we still wave palm branches, even as our country descends potentially into another season of political chaos? It's a new community with a new leader. We follow Jesus. It's also a new community of peace. We mentioned the palm branches are branches of peace, symbols of peace. There's another symbol of peace. Jesus says, get me a donkey. I'm a king about to ride into the capital city of Jerusalem. I don't want a horse. That means war. I want a donkey. That means humility. So Jesus gets on a donkey. You can't go to war when you're riding a donkey. It doesn't even look good. It's like, this is, I mean, that's humility, right? That's humility. I don't know if you've ever ridden a donkey like in the Grand Canyon, but it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. Jesus says, get me the awkward one, right? If Jesus rides on a war horse, we're in trouble, right? But he's riding on a donkey. Humility. Jesus is about peace. That's why the palm branches are about peace. That's why he's on a beast of burden that's about peace. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, right? During Palm Sunday, don't be afraid. They just got done saying, he's king, so now everybody's panicking. You just said he's king. That means we're going to war. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for that. Jesus says, no, don't be afraid. I'm getting on a donkey. This ain't gonna scare anybody, right? We're not going to war. Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine. There is no fear where there is peace, and Jesus brought peace, peace, peace. The wave of palm branches means peace. Riding on a donkey means peace. This new community that Jesus wanted to give us all is also a community of new life, a community of new life. 
It's a community where there's a new king, King Jesus. It's a community of peace and it's a community of new life. And in the scripture here, it says that the people in the South knew one thing about Jesus very clearly. As controversial of a figure as he was in the South, they knew one thing clearly. That guy raised Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty much all they know about Jesus. He was a controversial figure who raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can just kind of imagine Lazarus, who's walking around Jerusalem. That was me. Yep, probably had a shirt. Jesus, I'm the one. Jesus raised from the dead. That's what Jesus was known for. Arguably, the most powerful miracle in Jesus' ministry was raising his friend Lazarus from the dead in Jerusalem. So here's what it says in John 12, 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb in Jerusalem, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So even people in the South who weren't following Jesus, they were curious about Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead and they go out to see all the commotion. And what they experience is peace and laughter and smiles and a celebration. Northerners meet the Southerners, right? They didn't like each other, didn't respect each other, Many respects hated each other, but they celebrated around Jesus, a new king, a new kingdom of peace, a new community of togetherness. Really an incredible story, an incredible story. And what does that mean for us today? What that means for us today, I think, is every bit as powerful as it meant 2,000 years ago. We are in a divided world. I don't have time this month to list how divided we are in this world and how divided we are as a nation and how divided we are as a community. We are in a divided world, and so we've got to look to Palm Sunday and the coming of Jesus to say, okay, that's a model for us today, because Jesus came to break down all of the walls that existed between us and God. All the walls are broken down. The walls of guilt, the walls of, of shame, the walls of defining each other by sin, all those things done away with. Jesus says, you're forgiven. Believe it. God loves you. Believe it. He's a perfect heavenly father. Believe it. He's for you and he's proud of you. Believe it. Now let's walk a life that celebrates that, that there's no walls between us and God. And then Jesus says, there's no walls between you and each other. They're all gone. Every ethnic wall that can, that can divide us is gone. Every socioeconomic wall that can divide us is gone. Every religious wall that can divide us is gone. Jesus took it away. We just have to believe it. We have to believe it. And then we have to, to, to live it out in our daily lives. What does it mean to live in a world where there are no walls between people? Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter two. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He just brought it. We didn't earn it. He just brings peace. On the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus just did it. Any wall between you and God, it's just imaginary, it's not real. I talked to a wonderful gentleman after last service and he just couldn't get his head around the idea that there's no wall between him and God. He's been taught my sin separates me from God. The judgment of God is upon me. It's like, no, there is no wall there, it's just imaginary. Believe something different, it's gone. That's the kingdom of heaven. We think there are walls between us, political walls and religious walls and cultural walls. It's because we just believe they're there. Through Jesus, they're not even there in reality. We just keep thinking they're there. The cross, the sacrifice of Christ, the unconditional love of Christ removed all walls between us and God and removed all walls between us and each other. But there's so many forces 
what the Bible calls forces of this world that want to keep putting walls between us and God and want to keep putting walls between us and each other. But get this, and I wrote this down and I want you to see it. In Christ, there are no walls that separate us. They don't exist. The love Jesus showed us all is the very love of God for us all. So in God's eyes, we're all one beautiful, united, happy, global family. We just have to believe it. Well, it's not easy to believe <laughs> because there are forces that are convincing us it's not true. I'm gonna show you a few of them. There are political forces that spend their entire waking hours and billions of dollars trying to rip the D's and the R's apart. You know what I mean by the D's and the R's, right? All right. Political parties just trying to rip each other apart accusing each other of the nastiest things. You're an enemy of the country. You're, you're destroying our country. I mean, and back and forth, and both are equally culpable. Billions and billions of dollars in social media ad buys and social media threads and, and, and political infrastructures meant to absolutely tear the R's away from the D's. If any politician says, hey, why don't we you know, learn to, to get along and maybe solve problems together? the political machinery would hyperventilate. We don't do that because if we did that, if we worked together, we're not getting as much money, we're not getting as much views, we're not getting as, mu as many votes. It's just the machinery. And so many of us have just bought in. Yep, yep, yep. I'm a D, I'm an R, put me in my camp, and let's tear each other apart. It's just the way it works. There's a religious force. This is the one Jesus really battled most. Jesus really battled the religious forces most. That's why we talk about it a lot, because you can't escape it in the Bible. Religious forces. And by P and C, I'm just going to use my mainly, you know, sort of Christian terms, uh, theological uh, terms. There's the theological conservative and the theological progressive. And I'm telling you, they hate each other. I'm in this world. I see all of it. I see how the conservatives talk. I see how the progressives talk. They hate each other. And they call each other just as terrible of names as the R's and the D's. The P's and the C's rip each other apart not even saved, don't understand anything, not real followers of Jesus. You're a threat to the gospel. You're a threat to the message. You're a threat culturally. That's religious forces, tearing us apart. And then there are um, tribal forces, tribal forces tearing us apart. And this is hardwired in our brains. We are tribal people hardwired in our brains because not too long ago, we were trying to avoid being eaten by leopards and bears and lions and giant eagles. Do you know giant eagles went after early humans? I didn't know that. I just read that this week. And pythons. There's one community that exists today on the earth well, where one in 20 people are eaten by pythons. That's today in the world. That wasn't us not too long ago, right? That was us not too long ago. So we have tribal brains that say, you know what? I am safe when I'm around sameness. If I can cluster around people who are the same as me, I'm safe. Strength in numbers, strength in sameness. And then there's other tribes over here that are also safe in sameness. Same color skin, same background, same political views, same religious views, we're all safe because we're all same. And guess what? Those same people over there, they're the enemy. And we accuse each other back and forth. That's just how it goes. These are the forces that have always tried to tear us apart. That's why these are the forces that put Jesus to death. I'm just saying it plain. These are the forces that put Jesus to death because these are the forces that cannot stand a vision of a new community that actually loves each other. They can't stand it. 
They put Jesus to death then, and they push against the cause of Christ now. So what do we do? What do we do in our own lives? What do we do in our own families? What do we do in our own church? Because this vision that Jesus had of bringing north and south together, and even in the scripture around the Passover, even the Greeks from the west and the Persians from the east were together in Passover, and they were attracted to the curiosity of who Jesus is, this new king of a new kingdom and a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of unity. Well, what is unity? What is unity? Well, I've experienced a couple of definitions of unity. Um, there's been a couple times here at Rancho where we've spoken into some things, and, and some people didn't like it, and that's fine. And so I had a couple of religious people take me out to lunch and said, uh, you know, Scott, listen, we're friends, and, and why don't you seek unity? And I'll never forget this interaction with somebody I deeply respect. I said, why don't you give me your definition of unity? This is a paraphrase. Basically says things I agree with. If you say things I agree with, that's unity. I'll say, well, that's kind of interesting. I don't think that's biblical unity because I don't think Jesus was ever saying to the Northerners, hey, you want unity? Buy into everything the Southerners, you know. No, that's not unity. Unity is something far richer and more wonderful this is my definition of unity, and I always warn you when it's my definition because you can toss it, you know, at will. Unity is seeking a common understanding toward a common good. Unity is not that we agree on everything. Unity is not sameness. We're all nodding our, our heads and patting ourselves on the back. We're all from the same background and same economy and same ethnicity and same politics and same religion. That's a very boring place in my mind. It might look like unity, but it's just agreement. It's just agreement. And that's easy. That's easy. You know how easy it would be to have a congregation basically the same age, same economy, same ethnicity, same politics, same religious beliefs? You know how easy that would be? Piece of cake. We can do it in our sleep. It's harder to repeat Palm Sunday. North meets south, east meets west. New kind of king, Jesus bringing peace, not only with God, but with each other, and enjoying being together with all of our differences. Sometimes people are new to Rancho, and, and every once in a while, they'll, they'll be here for a while, and they'll go, oh, I love it here, love it here, love it here. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sitting next to people who aren't in my political party. <laughs> and like, Is this the kind of church I want to be in? I don't know, is it? Or they'll be sitting next to somebody, they'll find out from a different religious background, a different kind of upbringing, a different perspective of God. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm used to church where everybody's nodding their head to the same thing. Everybody's nodding their head as opposed to a humble learning community that's walking together and respecting each other and learning from each other. That's a whole different kind of thing. Unity is seeking a common understanding toward a common good. Here's my final point today. And this is something that I, I read this passage and I just had to laugh. Jesus' new community cannot be stopped. The new community that Jesus came to bring to earth peace, harmony, unity, and love cannot be stopped no matter what. John 12, 19, the religious leaders are gathering around as they always do judging Jesus and judging his disciples and they comment to each other and they say this, during this whole Palm Sunday party, the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do, look, Everyone is following him. Isn't that cool? They're like, there's nothing we can do. And they tried it all. 
They tried discrediting, discrediting him, didn't work. They tried threatening him, didn't work. They tried trapping him, they didn't work. They tried assassinating his character, it didn't work. They tried tarnishing his reputation, it didn't work. They tried to question his faithfulness and didn't work. They questioned his understanding of the Bible, it didn't work. They even tried to crush the spirits of his followers and didn't work. And so what did they do when Jesus entered Jerusalem? Nothing we have tried worked. So we're putting him to death. That'll work, right? We crucify him on a Friday, put him in the ground, that'll be the end of things, right? The movement will stop, right? The kingdom of heaven will stop, right? The leadership of Jesus and the, the love of Jesus and the unity of Jesus, all that'll stop, right? Hardly. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But what I can tell you right now is there's things we can do to bring unity today, and we need it. I'm gonna give you just a couple suggestions. Hold your political convictions with humility and grace. Is that even possible today? I don't know. But hold your political convictions with humility and grace. It doesn't have to be a weapon, you know, wielded on social media or anger directed towards your neighbor or your family member who holds to something different. Hold it with humility and grace. 2024 election could get gnarly. We need agents of grace and humility in America and locally. Hold your religious convictions with humility and grace. This is where people get a little bit bent out of shape because what they learned in youth group, they still hold on to, and it's so funny. You can hold it with humility and grace. It, does any one person have the entirety of truth of God and his work in our lives? No, no one has the entire truth of who God is and God's work in our lives. Yeah, we have convictions, we have opinions, we have biblical convictions and biblical opinions, great. But nobody's got all truth, nobody's carrying all truth, so let's carry our convictions with humility and grace. Let's recognize our own tribalism. We are all hardwired to be tribal people because not too long ago, we were running away from no joke, giant carnivore kangaroos. That's the thing. I just, again, read about it this last week. So early man was running away from all kinds of stuff. So our brain is wired for tribalism. Notice when we are judging people. Notice when we look at people and we have a judgment. Notice when we hear somebody and have a judgment. That is tribalism. Just notice that, right? Be an agent of unity. Seek to bring people together, building bridges, making friends, learning from each other, and put people first always. Always, always put people first. Not politics first, not convictions first, not issues first, people, human beings. Because every single human being in this room, every single human being in this world, every single human being from your ethnic background, your religious background, your political background, and everybody else who's not, is all dearly loved by God, made in the image of God, who Jesus gave his very life to love. That's how we should treat people. People first and people always. That's how we continue to wave palm branches of peace. We're going to sing a, a song to close. It's a rancho favorite. Evan, where are you at? There you are. We're going to sing a, call, a song called uh, Good Grace. And there's a couple parts about the song that just scream Palm Sunday and scream a message of unity and together. Uh, one is the first line, right? Yes. People come together. People come together. Every, That's about every it. nation. Um, it, it's talking about doesn't matter what, where you come from, what your background is, yeah. whatever it is. Just come together. You're welcome. We're going to worship God. Absolutely. And then there's a, a part uh, toward the end about fling wide yes. the heavens. It's yes. like the doors need to get wider and wider and wider. Yeah. And I think the whole goal is to say, open the door wider and wider and wider until there is no door. That's pretty cool. 
everybody's here. We're all welcome. The, the walls are gone. There's nothing there. It's just this. Now it's just we're just one big community together. That's, really cool. That's a cool concept. Because so, you know, we can talk about doors being wider and wider. And then your whole vision, I love it. It's like no doors. And then the walls that those doors were on aren't there. Right. And then uh, you know, I made the, make the connection to Palm Sunday. It's outside the gates. It's outside the city walls. Yeah. It's outside the city gates. It's outside the city doors. They were just enjoying each other and the yeah. freedom of the open air. Yeah. Kind of cool. I like that. Yeah. Well, why don't we have a good time? Yes, sir. All right. Absolutely. Talk it up. Sing this together. You can stand. <laughs> People come together. Strangers, neighbors, a poet is one. Children of generations, and every nation of kingdom come. Don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up, I don't fear no. Just fix your eyes on this one truth God is binding love with you Just take courage, hold on, be strong Remember when hell comes Everything with breath, repeat this sound. 
All His children, clean as pure hearts, good grace, good God. His name is Jesus. Yeah. Come on, sing that out. Swing wide, all you. 